This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. American universities in the 60s, was that a golden age destroyed by student radicals protesting the war in Vietnam and racism in America? For some answers, we turn to Ellen Schrecker. She's been our leading historian of McCarthyism for decades. Her books include No Ivory Tower, McCarthyism and the Universities. She taught American history for years at Yeshiva University. Now she's got a new book out. It's called The Lost Promise. Ellen Schrecker, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Well, let's acknowledge at the outset that this is a personal story for both of us. We're both part of the student movements of the 60s. Then we both spent our lives teaching in universities. So this is our life, pretty much. Yes. And this is a period when universities are expanding enormously, doubling and tripling in enrollments. Faculties are expanding even more. Graduate students are really expanding. And the schools are being transformed from elite to popular institutions. Uh, they're sort of the quintessential institution of Cold War liberalism in a way, in that there's a kind of sense that somehow they're going to solve Americans, America's problems and restore social mobility and carry out wonderful research and save the world. In the meantime, what is happening is that a whole generation of graduate students, you're part of it, I'm part of it, uh, are being uh, lured into the academy because the powers that be are afraid that there aren't gonna be enough faculty members for the baby boomers who are going to swarm onto the campus. So they literally threw money at us. Uh, there was prestige, there was intellectual excitement, and it was all completely affordable. Plus, there were jobs all over. And uh, even people who were, this was something that really surprised me in my research, uh, even people who were fired for political reasons could get other jobs in uh, the university. That had not happened in the 50s. So you say this is a story of decline, but... Today, doesn't every parent still want their kids to go to college? Isn't that still the American dream? Aren't American universities still ranked number one in the world? I, I, you know, I live in LA. I looked up some statistics for my neighborhood. UCLA had 140,000 applicants for its first year class last year. My own campus, UC Irvine, just a kind of a middle level middle, uh, had 100,000 applicants last year. It's kind of mind-boggling. Okay, this is because it's an essential institution. You need that bloody credential to get a job, to stay in the middle class, to get into the middle class. It's not because they love their colleges. What we're talking about is a institution that's been hollowed out completely since the 1960s. 75% uh, of all the instruction that is offered on American campuses are taught by what are called contingent faculty members. These are people who are part-timers, who often have to commute to teach uh, a number of courses on a number of campuses because they're only making $3,000 a course. They have to exist on food stamps. These, uh, their jobs are not secure. Um, so the quality 
of the instruction is declining for these structural reasons. And this is what we're talking about when we talk about decline. The first big topic of any discussion of the university in the 60s, of course, is student activism. And really the great thing about your book is that it's not about the students. As you say, it's about the faculty. We've got a million books about SDS and what happened on different campuses. I, I can't forget hearing liberal sociologist Seymour Martin Lipset giving a talk to grad students in 1966, where he said he was supposed to talk about his research. And he told us that he was studying, quote, why students are revolting. You know, heh heh. Uh, he said, and he had a theory. Uh, he said they revolted at Berkeley, uh, where he had taught before he left and came to Harvard, because they were neglected in the multiversity. But in elite colleges, this was his theory in 1966, elite colleges are centered on, on students, and it would never happen uh, at elite colleges. But then, of course, two years later, Columbia revolted. The year after that, Harvard revolted. Uh, but then he came up with a new theory. He said that privileged kids had the luxury of revolting, but it would never happen to working class kids at state colleges. The Ooh. next year, San Francisco State revolted. He quit his job at Harvard. He went to the Hoover Institution. The question that many faculties had to face was the anti-war movement's critique of ROTC on campus. Professors wanted to be able to say, this is a problem in the White House, in Congress. This is not a problem for us. But the students came up with the strategy of focusing on what they call, what we called university complicity in the war. Most campuses, especially state campus, state university campuses, had ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Program, where students got course credit for studying how to be military officers. And then when they graduated, they were sent to Vietnam as lieutenants where they led combat units. A lot of them got killed. So there was a direct link between training soldiers to go to Vietnam and giving them university credit for what were university courses. This really was a, a pressing issue on many campuses. The military relied very heavily on ROTC to staff its junior officer corps. And this was only one kind of protest that the students had against what their schools were doing. I assume, were you uh, at Princeton when they took over the IDA? I was already graduate. I had already graduated. What was IDA? The what was it called? Institute for Defense Analyses. It was a very high level body within the Pentagon that recruited the superstars of physics to solve the problems of their weapons. And it was only housed at, I think, a dozen very, very elite universities, MIT, uh, Princeton, Harvard, Columbia, and uh, students, students um, also anti-war students very early on began to protest against the uh, position of this uh, war machine on the campus. They also protested against uh, the university allowing um, uh, military industries, especially Dow Chemical, which made uh, napalm, which was a sort of uh, goo that was dropped from helicopters and it burned people to death. Wonderful stuff. And um, it had been invented at Harvard, by the way. Uh, but 
Uh, anyhow, there was this uh, one form of protest besides the opposition to ROTC was against uh, the schools uh, allowing recruiters from the industry, uh, defense industries onto the campus. I want to talk about the conservative critique of all this. Conservatives, of course, have been complaining about liberals on the faculty Going back to the 50s, uh, that's where William Buckley got his start, God and Man at Yale. But in the 60s, the complaint turned to the presence of radicals and, and eventually Marxists uh, running the college campuses. How ubiquitous were radicals and Marxists really on college and university faculties in the 60s? Well, they certainly weren't running the schools, that's for sure. The schools were being run mainly the administration and the overwhelming bulk of the faculty were liberals of a sort, liberals and moderates. Uh, certainly faculty members were not political activists by any manner of means. There were a few who were. They got hassled quite a bit. Some even were fired. But with only a few exceptions, they were able to get other jobs. But uh, there weren't a lot of um, radicals. Seymour Martin Lipset, who is the authority because he got tons of money from the Carnegie Foundation to run surveys, uh, sort of says it's less than 10% of the faculty, probably the group that was probably most. So let's uh, talk a little bit about that 10%. The left on campus, especially, uh, we're talking here about the faculty and, and some of the grad students wasn't just protesting, they were also doing research and, and, and writing. And uh, one of the most uh, interesting parts of your book, The Lost Promise, is about the work of radical scholars and the organizations of radical scholars. What do you think were their most significant achievements? I'm thinking here about the organizations okay. of radical faculty members, ERPI, the Union of Radical Political Economists, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, Science for the People, and yeah. of course, our organization, Marho, the Radical Historians Organization, they did some pretty significant work. CCAS, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, they began to critique their own field. And that was happening in many disciplines, including very important work in the field of literature of expanding the canon. You know, people talk about Black studies. Well, Black studies, actually, there was a lot of Black studies. It was all at HBCUs. People didn't even know about it. And of course, Black scholars weren't hired by majority white schools, of course. But uh, what was happening was people are discovering new writers, publishing uh, new sources in a number of fields. And of course, developing whole new fields especially women's uh, studies and the social history of science. Another uh, one of the most important parts of your book is the attention you pay to Southern colleges and universities, which we don't hear much about. And you say there's a reason for that. They had a much higher level of repression. Tell us a little bit about what was going on in the South. Well, the South, of course, was an area of the country that was run by white supremacists, period. And even black colleges were run by whites once you got high enough, especially if they're public schools. And they have a student body that is uh, becoming increasingly more radicalized by the 60s, of course. And they are beginning to make 
demands on their colleges, not necessarily against ROTC or something like that, but for Black studies. Apparently, uh, there had been Black studies taught, Black history especially, at these segregated schools up until about the 40s or 50s. Then it's dropped because the schools are trying to upgrade themselves to be like the white schools. Oh, man. Stop teaching Black history, if you can believe it. But there are enough um, Black uh, scholars who are still pushing, you know, still infusing their students with a sense of, uh, reality and what the history of African-Americans has been. So they're becoming radicalized that way. And um, what we see is an enormous amount of repression and repression against white faculty members who are also trying to sort of make statements about, well, you know, we, we should be allowed to talk about uh, race and things like that. So the hollowing out of the university that you talked about that that has created this crisis of so much of the teaching is done by uh, temporary lecturers. This really began in the 70s with a crisis of a public of uh, funding for public universities. Yeah. Tuition at the University of California was free for residents in 1968. But uh, starting in the 70s, the the state contribution to the university budget fell steadily until it was what it is today, something like 10% of the budget of the University of California comes from taxpayers' funds in the state legislature. All the rest comes from either student tuition, government grants, or philanthropists. So, uh, you know, one of the big questions that your book poses is, how can we explain this disaster? To what extent was this the result of conservative critique of the radicals in the university. There was also a huge economic recession in the mid-70s. And then there was the rise of this idea that, well, college helps you earn money and therefore uh, you should pay for it. How do you separate these out? Well, you don't separate them out. <laughs> it's all part of a um, sort of drive for austerity, a imposition of a neoliberal political culture uh, that comes in in the 1970s. And you probably know, have heard of the Powell Memo. Okay. This is a very significant document. Back in the early 70s, the future Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell was a very high-powered lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. He had been president of the American Bar Association. He was a big-time lawyer, but he was also a raging conservative. And he is asked by his friend, who is about to become the chairman of the Chamber of Commerce's Education Committee. And what Powell writes is a 34-page document intended for big businessmen who are concerned about the fact that students coming off the campus have been brainwashed by their liberal professors and we have to do something to counter it. Now, he's also a uh, libertarian 
who believes that more and more things should be done by the market and the government should just get out of almost everything except police and military, I think. And so what you're getting is a prescription for a war on the liberal university. That come, it's written in 1971, and he calls not only for throwing out the radical professors, that goes without saying, but also to construct a kind of counter-institution uh, to take over American political culture. Uh, but it's this can, uh, attack on the university, a drive to privatize it as much as possible, to bring in a co- more pro, pro-business atmosphere on the campus. They start uh, right-wing think tanks. They support graduate students. They create programs. This is the, all of, a lot of this is being funded by the Koch Foundation. Uh, and so we're getting an attack, a very clever attack on academic expertise Uh, These are the people who are funding climate deniers. These are the people who are funding the uh, provocateurs like who come onto the campus and and just make racist comments to provoke people, to get people upset. And then the university can't deal with it and they clamp down. And then all of a sudden, guess who's repressing freedom of speech? It's the left. Well, not quite. Anyhow. This is uh, what has begun with a pushback, a backlash against the 60s. And of course, an important player in this whole thing is Ronald Reagan. Ellen Schrecker's new book is The Lost Promise, American Universities in the 1960s. Ellen, thanks for talking with us today. Oh, my pleasure, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 